Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome. I'm Bernice Heilbrunn, your new host for New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm speaking today to Anne-Marie O'Connor, author of The Lady in Gold, The Extraordinary Tale of Gustav Klimt's Masterpiece, Portrait of Adele Bloch-Bauer. In her book about Gustav Klimt's Portrait of Adele Bloch-Bauer and its eventual recovery by her niece Maria Altman, O'Connor takes us on an engaging tour of Fan de Cirque Vienna, the world of art and Jewish high society during an era when the mores of an old empire clashed with the new world of Sigmund Freud. From there, she takes us through the period of Nazi rule and ultimately to the 1990s in Los Angeles, when Maria Altman joined with the determined young attorney, Randall Schoenberg, to recover the art that was rightfully hers. The iconic Klimt portrait that Okana tracks from its creation through its theft to its ultimate recovery, was then famously acquired by philanthropist Ronald Lauder and now anchors the collection of the Neue Gallery on Fifth Avenue in New York City. The portrait comes alive in O'Connor's writing. Her book brings into focus issues in the news today, particularly questions surrounding restitution of works of art of national importance and artwork plundered during the Holocaust. Now, let me welcome Anne-Marie O'Connor, how are you today? Very well. Thank you for having me. Good. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, could you please tell our listeners a bit about your background? Uh, yes. I am a reporter uh, uh, of several decades. Um, I started uh, covering uh, the wars in Central America in the 1980s in El Salvador and Nicaragua. Um, I had studied art as an art student, uh, so I, I came to... Reporting uh, with that background, um, I uh, I moved to Los Angeles to be a reporter for the Los Angeles Times and did a mix of investigative and arts reporting and also magazine pieces. Great. So you bring unique skills to this book. Um, how did you come to write The Lady in Gold? Well, I was in Los Angeles uh covering a variety of things, politics and, and profiles and um, more of a cultural beat. And one day I was uh, reading a newspaper, a community newspaper um, that, of the West Side in Los Angeles, and they had a very small item in the newspaper about a local woman who was trying to get back a painting of her aunt. And in those days, no one got back stolen art. So I looked at it, you know, it was one of those cases, like many in Los Angeles that weren't going to go anywhere. But then I saw this postage stamp size image of this painting, and I thought, oh my God, that painting? It was a very famous painting. One of Gustav Klimt's wealthy, decadent society women, or at least I had been told that in art history class many years before. Uh, so I called 411. And I uh, got Marie Altman's number. She invited me over. 
she answered the door, and Marie Altman was a tremendously charismatic woman. Uh, she sat me down and made me uh, Viennese coffee with lots and lots of whipped cream, which I gather is some kind of key to longevity among Viennese centenarians. And she told me this amazing story uh, about Gustav Klimt and these enigmatic women. According to Maria, these women were not uh, boring society women. They were intellectuals, uh, kind of lady existentialists. They were friends of Clint. Her aunt may have even had a thing with Clint. Uh, her aunt was the subject of this very famous portrait, Clint's gold portrait of Adele Blockbauer, one of his most famous paintings. And according to Maria, these women were also Jewish, uh, which is why uh, she was trying to get back the portrait of her aunt that had been stolen by the Nazis. And according to her, some of the other portraits have been stolen, too. This blew my mind. Uh, this contradicted anything I'd ever heard about uh, the, the, portrait, the famous portraits of women by Gustav Klimt. So I was really intrigued by this, and I listened to her, and I thought, uh, could this all possibly be true? Wow. Good. I'd, I'd like you to set up this conversation now for our listeners by reading an excerpt. Would you, would you read a few words to set the stage for our listeners now? Sure. I'll start at the beginning. The Belvedere Palace of war hero Prince Eugene seemed the setting of a fairy tale on the winter morning in 2006 when a young Los Angeles attorney wearing a long black coat and an habitual air of impatience trudged through its snowy gardens to lay claim to a painting he had spent years fighting for. The lone man strode briskly along the Imperial Palace's frozen pond. Ice clung to the monumental sphinxes standing sentinel along his path, their hair swirling around fiercely beautiful faces, breasts naked between tassels dangling from armor. Their eyes cast a bold gaze of faded conquest. The lawyer was Randall Schoenberg, the grandson of a venerated Viennese composer who had fled the rise of Hitler. The return of this ominous heir was anything but welcome. The painting Schoenberg sought was a shimmering gold masterpiece painted a century earlier by the artistic heretic Gustav Klimt. It was a portrait of a Viennese society beauty, Adele Blackbauer. Both artist and model were long dead, but people still enjoyed speculating they had been lovers. Their artistic collaboration produced one of the greatest portraits of the modern age. Austrians regarded the painting as their Mona Lisa. Schoenberg lifted the first painting in the rack, and the light caught a shimmering surface. Here was the masterpiece Schoenberg was fighting for. He stared in wonder at Adele's face, floating in a haze of gold as pale and sultry as a diva of the silent screen. For eight years, Schoenberg had argued this painting did not belong to Austria. Most people would have given up long ago, but Schoenberg had a remarkable client with a stubbornness to match his own. A 90-year-old retired dress shop owner, disarmingly charming, and as dignified and composed as the carefully cultivated Viennese debutante she had once been. This one time, Vienna Bell, Maria Blockbauer Altman, was the last living link to her Aunt Adele, who was the muse, and perhaps much more, of Gustav Klimt. 
Thank you. And for our listeners, let me, uh, as an aside, mention at this point that in addition to uh, printed book form, uh, this book is available as an audio book for those who like to listen to their books. Um, now, from that prologue that you uh, read us an excerpt from, and I would have loved you to go on forever, it really sets the stage for, for the book. From this prologue, uh, you reveal a very intimate knowledge of present-day events and attitudes in Vienna, as well as taking us back more than 100 years. So how did you acquire the information about current-day Vienna? I spent a lot of time in Vienna. You know, uh, when I first met Maria, I was very intrigued by all the names that she mentioned uh, that were involved in the story, uh, like Sigmund Freud, Arthur Schnitzler, I'd never heard of him, um, and uh, uh, Marlena Dietrich, and Hedy Lamar, who uh, was a debutante uh, with Maria, uh, whose name was Hedvig Kiesler in those days. Um, I wasn't an expert on Vienna. Uh, Vienna in the old days or contemporary Vienna. So I really had to read up on it. Uh, the, what I had most heard about was the scandal involving uh, the presidential candidate and eventual president, Kurt Waldheim. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Vienna because I wanted to really capture the Viennese character. So I went on long visits to Vienna uh, for as long as seven weeks and rented an apartment and uh, just really tried to soak up the Vienna atmosphere and socialize with with some of the protagonists. And, uh, in, you know, in the case of Austrian government officials, they weren't uh, initially receptive. So I just tried to cultivate them and get to know them so that uh, we could talk about the story and they could help me. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And that's all really adds to the account that you provide for your readers. Let's let's turn to explore some of the key parts of the book now. Uh, your book is in three parts, each one with a provocative title. Part one is Emancipation. So let's start uh, with this era in which the portrait was painted uh, in Van de Cercle, Vienna from around 1898 to just before the First World War. Could you describe this era when Adele Bloch-Bauer chose to sit for her portrait with Gustav Klimt? You, you, you talk about it as a time of dichotomies and dissonances, uh, particularly for women and for Jews. This was just one of the most fascinating, dynamic times to be alive. This was what people referred to as the birth of modernism. This was a time when immigration uh, of of Jewish residents of the empire into Vienna was bringing all these talented minds into the city. Now, the the title emancipation refers to the Jewish emancipation. Before the Jewish emancipation, uh, which was codified into law in the 1860s, but really began in the 1840s, these Jewish families were very restricted in where they could live and where they could work. Now, under uh, Emperor Franz Joseph, he began to change these restrictions and loosen them and allow Viennese Jew- allow Jewish families to move into Vienna. Uh, the families of Freud, of Gustav Mahler, of many brilliant people moved them into Vienna, and suddenly there were, was a cosmopolitan mix of, of new people with new ideas uh, who had much more open minds about art, 
about women, about uh, many things that in Vienna were really set in stone in those days because of the aristocracy was so traditional. And one of those things that was absolutely set in stone was art. Uh, the Viennese museums would not show the new art. In Paris and in other cities, they were beginning to bring the modern art into the academy, but not in Vienna. And this group of people was very key to Gustav Klimt, to supporting him in this new art that modernists like him were beginning to create. You describe wealthy Jewish industrialists and their families, among them Adele's father and her husband-to-be. Who were these people and what was life like for them? Well, you know, they had grown up taking uh, a lot of prejudice for granted. Um, uh, but this was before a lot of people's prejudices would hold them back. So this was a time when they moved to Vienna where it was exciting for them, too, because prejudice still exists. Existed. The mayor of Vienna, Karl Luger, uh, was a fan of anti-Semite. But at this point, a lot of the prejudices weren't holding them back. They were there, but they were more in the background. And they were empowered uh, by Emperor Franz Joseph and by other uh, figures at that time in the empire to conduct their lives and and to start to become much fuller citizens in Vienna. And one of the uh, symbolic elements of that was that they could build homes on this famous Ringstrasse, the new Ringstrasse that was put up in place of the wall that the emperor tore down around Vienna. It created this enormous space of land where they could build big mansions. So in these mansions, they began to build them, with this new art. Great. Thanks. Now, let's talk for a moment about the artist Gustav Klimt. You write that Klimt was king of the Vienna art world. Could you talk a bit about Klimt and his background and poverty, his Jewish patrons, and his claim to fame? Klimt was a very intriguing person. Um... He was from a very poor background. He was an outsider. His father spoke very bad German. Uh, his father was Czech. Uh, Clint was from a poor Catholic family. Uh, many members of his family were mentally ill. His mother suffered from depression. Uh, most of his sisters uh, were mentally ill in one way or another, either depressed or, in one case, one of his sisters was delusional. Only one of his sisters would ever marry this was a family that was under tremendous stress. He had to drop out of school when he was in his early teens uh, to help support the family. Luckily, he was brilliant and very, very talented. And he went to an applied arts academy, not the, not the real fine arts academy in Vienna, but a more sort of decorative arts academy. And a teacher took him under his wing and got him commissioned to paint beautiful decorative art murals in palaces and theaters throughout the empire. He did these with his brother. Now, uh, they became successful very young. By their late teens, they were already uh, very much in demand. They were both very, very handsome men. And uh, in an ordinary world in Vienna, someone of their social class would not be accepted into... uh, into high society there. But their looks 
and their talent began to trump their social background. And their mother had wanted to be an opera singer. So their family was also cultured. So they were part of a, of a very early meritocracy in Vienna of bohemians and intellectuals and artists who uh, were getting along on their talent and not the fact that they were had a title or they were baronesses or the other ways where Vienna society was established. Um, so these, these people uh, naturally melded into the new avant-garde Jewish intelligentsia uh, that Adele Blackbauer's family came from. Now, there was an established Jewish aristocracy represented by the Rothschilds and the Apruzis and other families in Vienna. This was a different milieu. They were newer. Uh, they had newer ideas. They collected newer art. And Gustav Klimt found his social niche uh, in their circle, particularly among the women in his circle, who tended to be more intellectual than aristocratic uh, Catholic girls of, of that era. Uh, they were involved in learning. Uh, it, there was an inheriting system in those days uh, in the empire, which gave the firstborn boy uh, the control of the family uh, assets, something like that in Downton Abbey. But among this Jewish elite, uh, fathers gave substantial inheritances to girls. And this gave them a certain amount of freedom to cultivate themselves and and a certain amount of independence. Uh, so this was the milieu Clint found himself in. So you, you situate Clint in a sexually charged time. Let me ask you a bit of a provocative question, um, suggested also by what you shared in the prologue about the relationship the or the specula- speculation about the relationship between Clint and Adele Blockbauer. Um, you, you described the period in Vienna as uh, sexually charged and extending from the emperor uh, at one end of the uh, social spectrum uh, all the way through to um, the common man in Vienna, including, of course, Sigmund Freud, who's at this point has published Interpretation of Dreams and is, is active. You describe Klimt as an artist with several affairs running simultaneously, including more than one illegitimate child, with this reputation, why did Adele and her friends seek to have their portraits painted by him in the seclusion of his, his, of his house? Well, I think for this group of women, Clint was considered a genius. Um, his erotic drawings were notorious, uh, but they were a, a rare acknowledgement of female sexuality at a time when uh, nice women weren't supposed to enjoy sex. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, some Viennese, not just these women, probably fantasized about him and what he was like in bed. Uh, I think he, at that time, he was extremely handsome and charismatic. You know, he might have been a little bit like a Mick Jagger figure where he was uh, just, you know, a big celebrity and, uh, and a very intriguing man. Mm-hmm. Another aspect was he was risque. Uh, a lot of the aristocratic families wouldn't have wanted their daughters, particularly the maiden daughters, anywhere near his reputation of seducing his model. But for these families, these progressive Jewish families, 
Klimt was risque, but also very prestigious, a real status symbol. It was kind of like having a Warhol portrait done in the 1960s in New York. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Thanks. Now let's talk about the portrait that's the subject of this book. You describe it as where Vienna's glittering past met its fratricidal present. And you also write that it's, quote, a painting with a flourish of Mozart, yet a product of Freud's emerging age of the psyche. What do you mean? Well, one of the things that distinguished Klimt's portraits in the eyes of art historians is that the psychology that is projected and emotions on these women's faces. This is, they're not like Sergeant Singer or other portraits in which women are a little bit more passive and where you kind of, they, even though you don't see the men in their lives, they're somewhere off stage, there's a wealthy husband or a prominent father who commissioned these portraits. Clint's portraits are really about the women themselves and their own story. And there's a tremendous amount of restlessness in the eyes of many of his women and what one Viennese uh, expert on Clint, Tobias Matter, calls, uh, in the case of Adele Blackbauer, uh, a restlessness on about her gender role. Uh, these are women who seem to want more in, in a society that wants them to be less. In Adele's painting, she is literally sort of surrounded by gold. She's in a gilded cage, or she is seems to be pinned down by gold. And her face is floating. Uh, Some people said in in those days, uh, one journalist said of Clint that he later that he invented uh, the uh, the the siren of uh, film. So the flourish of Mozart uh, when. Cliff is one of the painters in Vienna that really made the transition into modernism. Unlike Egon Schiele, he didn't start from a modern position. He started in decorative art. So he brought all of this with him uh, when he started to uh, sort of push more into modernist images. So he had, the painting is so ornate. It has all of the gold of Vienna. Vienna is a place where a lot of things are gilded. If you walk around Vienna, you can see globes and spears and all kinds of things are gilded. Uh, It's an ornamentation that uh, they really love there. He brought all this with him into uh, his modernism. He brought Vienna's past into the present. That is so interesting. It's uh, it's, it's great how you... Um, have access to uh, your background in art uh, and can use that to enrich this account for us. Um, let, let's talk a bit about Adele Blackbauer. Um, you, you've already uh, shared something about her with us, about her and her milieu. Uh, there's more to her, of course, than her portrait. As you show us in the book, you write that she had existential concerns and you describe her Red Saturday salons, where she held court, talking about her her particular views. Could could you tell us a little? And of course, this is what her niece Maria Altman, I guess, uh, remembered about her aunt too. Her red salons and her uh, her exceptional, her different views about uh, 
politics and life. Could you tell us a little about that? Well, Adele was very modern for that age. I mean, she called herself a Buddha. Uh, she was a reformer. Um, she uh, was very uh, focused on trying to get modern Viennese art into the big museums, into the Belvedere. Uh, she was uh, very concerned that, that the modern art that she loved get the recognition that she felt that it deserved. And in her case, that was the paintings of Gustav Klimt. Um, but she was a reformer in other ways. Uh, she wanted, she was uh, part of a group of people that was trying to get vaccinations for children and public uh, kindergartens and schools for kids, which at that time the public education and health system was just being formed in Vienna. Um, you know, women uh, just got had just gotten the vote when she was having new salons, and women would change politics in Vienna in those days and help a uh, social reformer uh, get elected uh, as Chancellor of Austria, Karl Renner. Now, this she was very active. However, um, her friends were intellectual. Uh, one of them was a famous writer, Berta Zuckerkandl, a, a pioneer journalist in that age. Another was the first woman who went to the medical school. She had to dress as a man. These were very brave women. Now, Adele, like a lot of people, uh, wasn't willing to sacrifice everything to really uh, go all the way. <laughs> she had a friend who had an affair after an affair, Alma Mahler, and who married... Uh, one distinguished man after another, but Alma Mahler was really willing to roll the dice and risk herself. And I think Adele probably wanted to be more than who she was, than a just a um, sort of a living room intellectual. Uh, but having said that, she actually uh, distinguished herself very much for her day. Interesting. So you describe her at one point as an unfinished woman. Is is that what you meant? That she she really didn't go all the way in terms of her pursuing her reform goals. I, I wasn't sure what you. She died very young. We don't. She was only forty three when she died. We don't know what she would have become. But by all accounts, uh, she was married to someone who she loved and respected, but wasn't passionately in love with. Mm-hmm. Um. And she never, although we found a letter of her, she may have bloomed as a writer and as a more publicly acknowledged intellectual who left a permanent legacy, but she didn't, uh, from what we know. So, um, you know, she was one of these people who uh, moved society forward behind the scenes. And I think that that's still very common uh, in this day. She, she did do a lot for her society, but she did it in a role that was less acknowledged. And reading her the writings that she did leave behind, I think that she uh, wanted to be more. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And, and I know from my students, people are always surprised to see what women thought and accomplished um, at this period of time. It, it breaks their stereotypes of what women did. So this really adds to our understanding. <laughs> I think this is what happens to most women and also most men. But in the case of women, they face uh, many more barriers still to this day. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that this also tends to be true. People start with these ambitions and then they settle for something less. We don't know who Adele would become had she lived longer. Mm-hmm. Right. As, as, you, as you indicated, she died at 43 in 1925. Um, and wishing to immortalize Klimt, she asked that her husband give their two portraits and four landscapes by Klimt to the Austrian gallery. Her written disposition of her portrait and the absence of legal right of ownership by a wife become critical in the later fight over the famous portrait of her. How does how does this ultimately figure into the legal disposition of the Klimt? How does this writing by uh, by Adele Blockbauer? And I'm not even sure if I should call it a will. I don't know if women had the legal authority to dispose of their property. What was this a will that she left? Um, well, it was a will of sorts. She was asking Ferdinand after his death uh, to. Um, donate the Klimt paintings to the Belvedere Museum. Now, according to what Austrian legal scholars concluded later, the paintings belonged to Ferdinand. He commissioned them. He paid for them. He was the owner of the paintings. Now, he did say, he did legally say that he would abide by her will. And at the time, they were both involved in an effort to get Clint's paintings into the Belvedere, Ferdinand himself had paid to get one of Clint's most experimental paintings, uh, a painting called Medicine, um, uh, to buy it and get it into the Belvedere Gallery. So they were both on board the same project. He had every intention to do this. Uh, The question that came up later was, uh, if he was the owner... Did he? Did she have any right to uh, unilaterally uh, uh, donate those paintings? Now, you know, there's really no evidence in the will that she um, intended to do that. She asked him to do this, and he said that he would. Later, he changed his mind, and that that was the problem. Mm-hmm. And this sets the stage for what we'll talk about in a few minutes when we uh, talk about um, the recovery efforts. Um, So this is really helpful. Let me move on then to part two of your book, which is captioned Love and Betrayal. Um, After Adele's death, Ferdinand creates a sort of shrine for her in his home, as you describe it. Can you tell our listeners about it and why was this this important? Yeah, uh, this was... uh this was Ferdinand's memory room, he called it. Um, he would go and, or remembrance room. He would go and sit there and kind of meditate and think about her and think about art. He left a photograph of Gustav Klimt on her uh, bedside table. It had been there for years. Uh, this was where Clint kind of, or where Ferdinand kind of enshrined the memory of his wife. He never... He did have other women in his life after this, but he would never settle down again. Uh, his niece used to say, his niece Louisa, uh, he, he wanted a Buddha. In other words, the other women didn't measure up to the way that he idealized uh, Adele. 
So we we have not only Adele and her friends, but Ferdinand is a very special figure who you um, really create for us here and, and help us to follow him through his life. He proves himself to be a dedicated supporter of the arts. And you describe his support for Kokoschka, who painted Ferdinand's portrait and, like Klimt, had largely Jewish patrons who were open to innovation. Through Kokoschka, you describe Ferdinand as quite aware and fearful of German anti-Semitism. Um, what, what was the Germans' grasp of art and artists that was critical during this period? Well, uh, there, it, it's true that Ferdinand was much more sensitive than the rest of his family to the currents of anti-Semitism in Germany. Uh, Hitler had come to power in 1933. Um, very soon, uh, the Germans began to pull down art that they considered degenerate from museum walls, and Hitler himself presided over the art show that resulted from degenerate art. Uh, there were many uh, painters, including Kokoschka, that were seized uh, during this period. Pretty much everybody good. Matisse, Picasso, uh, in Germany. Um, now, Ferdinand, at this point, really stepped up to the plate. He showed that he was a very brave person. He sponsored this art show of Kokoschka, who was considered a degenerate in Germany at that moment. And he paid to extend the show so that they could show defiance in Vienna to this fascist trend that was building in Germany. Um, the rest of his family really wasn't paying that much attention to this. The, the title, uh, Love and Betrayal, uh, refers to how they felt that they loved Vienna so much and they felt like Vienna loved them back. Uh, and it was very surprising to them when they found that this love was somewhat unrequited. Well, and life, in fact, then for Jews in Vienna becomes impossible with, especially after the 1938 Anschluss with, when Austria is united with Germany. You describe how Ferdinand and their nieces suffered their property being seized, including their homes, their factories, even their musical instruments and their jewels. Maria Altman's husband is imprisoned in Dachau. Each family member has a unique story that you recount, and your account offers a fresh perspective, I'd say, on the Anschluss's impact on wealthy assimilated Jews in Vienna. What happens to Klimt's portraits of Adele and to... Ferdinand's art collection? Well, you know, um, the, uh, the Nazis just went to his house. They opened it up. They invited all the museum directors in. And they just said to them, uh, what do you want? Um, they didn't want the Klimt paintings. <laughs> they wanted the Waldmuller's or the Biedermeier school paintings. Or they wanted traditional art of uh, paintings of aristocrats or of sort of bosomy, um, uh, dramatic looking women, uh, at beer halls or, or pastorals or they wanted things that were very traditional that Adele would have found to be kitsch. They weren't interested in the Clinch paintings. They passed them by and just left them in the, in the, uh, in the house. They wanted paintings that represented 
Germanic value. So they took uh, Ferdinand's most traditional pieces of art and then divided up, up among themselves for Hitler's Führer Museum in Linz as presents between Goring and other Nazis. Uh, and they left the Kunst paintings there. Now, several years later, um, the uh, governor, Nazi governor of Vienna, Walter von Schirach, was a huge fan of Gustav Klimt. And uh, there was more interest in Klimt among the museum community. They started to look at where these Klimt paintings were around Vienna. And where did they find them in the homes, uh, Aryanized homes uh, that had been seized from Jewish families? So eventually, uh, an agent of Aryanization named Eric Fuhrer, who was an SS officer, went over to Ferdinand's house and picked up the Klimt paintings. Uh, everyone knew at that time that they were portraits of Jewish women. Then this was one of them. Klimt was known at that time as a philo-Semite and friend of Jews. Now, everybody knew this in Vienna, but Walter von Schirach loved Clint, and, uh, and not everyone knew this about Clint in, in Berlin. Clint could be, for the purposes of, of the Nazis in Vienna, he could be sort of cleansed of his philo-Semitic past and cast as a virile, handsome, Germanic ubermensch. Uh, and uh, his painting... The women were very beautiful. They were emblematic of being a society of women. Uh, Kunt was an excellent draftsman, so the likenesses were very realistic. So he could be, his paintings could be uh, shown uh, as uh, as masterpieces of Viennese art, which they were, as long as they didn't tell people uh, the names of these women, because they had been quite prominent in recent times, and they were Jewish. So they gave all the paintings anonymous names. Lady with Chinese wallpaper. Lady with uh, flowers in the background. Uh, lady in gold. And that was the portrait of Adele Blackwell. Mm-hmm. And thus it was cleansed of its Jewish connection. Um, let, let's move on to part three, which you caption atonement. Uh, why the choice of atonement for this chapter? Well, because that was the question that was begged. The war ended, and uh, there, I suppose there would be an expectation of atonement in the perfect world. Um, some contrition, some show of shame. Instead, after the war, uh, many SS officers got uh, pensions before um, Holocaust survivors. So uh, Austria didn't go out of its way to help uh, Jewish families who've been exiled. Many of them had lost their citizenship automatically because the survivors had left. Hitler had taken away their citizenship. They were forced to reapply. They came back. There was a lot of red tape to getting the property. The fact that they weren't citizens was held against them in some technical aspect. It was just really hostile red tape. And eventually, you know, some of them came back and tried to get what they could, uh, but they went away. And Ferdinand actually never went back. He couldn't get his house. He couldn't get his bank accounts. He couldn't get anything. He stayed in a Swiss hotel room 
after the war for a few months in 1945. And uh, then uh, even, even the, then he died uh, a few months after the war was, was over, brokenhearted. He had made a will leaving his possessions to Maria in Los Angeles, his niece and Louisa, and another nephew in Canada. Now, at this point, Ferdinand had no intention of donating his portraits of his wife uh, to the Austrians, to any museum. He was trying to get all of his art back, but he was especially focused on getting back these portraits because he didn't want to now. They had murdered his friends and stolen their property, and he was not interested in, in giving his portraits to the country that had, had destroyed his world. So he didn't sit on his rights. He actually tried to uh, obtain recovery uh, right after the war, it sounds like. Yeah, he had been trying to get these paintings back even during the war. Wow. So and you describe Austrian extortion um, in exchange for exit papers. Uh, what what happened? What, what did happen to the painting after the war? Well... Um, uh, the Austrians knew they were on very shaky legal ground. Uh, they knew that they were probably, according to the correspondence, holding these portraits illegally. They'd never gotten anything signed from Ferdinand uh, giving them possession of these portraits. They were aware that he was the owner, or at least that's reflected in their, in their uh, correspondence, they, the belief that he was the owner. Um, and, you know, at this point... Uh, Gustav Klimt was not a patrimonial painter. He wasn't one of those painters that you had to leave in Austria at that time. He still wasn't considered that important. Um, but nevertheless, when Jewish families came forward and tried to get their Klimt paintings back, uh, the, the, uh, the administrators who were the same people who had stolen the art during the war, were now administrators of the Federal Monuments Office or of the museum. And they just weren't going to give these paintings back, and they sought all of these people. And so what they told them in many cases was, if you give us the title to these Clint paintings, we will allow you to take some of your possessions out of Austria. Now, in the case of Ferdinand's family, um, they let them take out 20% of his brother's uh, wife's family's estate in return for signing over the uh, Gustav Klimt paintings to the government. Now, this was uh, later deemed illegal, but at this time, this was standard practice after the war, and this is how a lot of the stolen art was uh, legalized. Um, you know, a, a, a few scholars of the Holocaust have begun to uh, show us through their research that the bureaucrats of the Nazi era became the bureaucrats of the post-war era. And I think with your research here, um, you've, you've shown us that that's the same thing happened with the uh, Austrian gallery, where, as you said, the same, same people were in charge. Uh, well, no. this was very true in Vienna because, you know, uh, in Vienna, in, in Germany, they had some denazification. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, the, in, in Austria, they had two amnesties right after the war. 
in the late 1940s and in the 1950s. And those amnesties pretty much uh, put the nail in the coffin of denazification and allowed a lot more people get off the hook than, uh, than were allowed to in Germany. Interesting. Um, now, a number of events paved the way for Maria Altman, who survived, of course, and uh, made a new home in Los Angeles. And she was the one who ultimately recovered the Klimt. And you relate the, a fascinating story of an Austrian count who became an investigative journalist, broke the news of Kurt Waldheim's wartime participation and his deceit and cover-up during Waldheim's presidential campaign in 1986. Waldheim won nonetheless, uh, and then it was in 1998, I think, when the provenance of an Egon Schiele painting at a MoMA exhibition in New York was discovered, uh, and New York State's Attorney General refused to allow the painting to leave the U.S. That led to publicity that put the art world on notice that ownership of art seized by Nazis remained an issue. Um, that seemed to open the door to the possibility of recovery for Maria Altman at that point? Yes, well, uh, the ensuing scandal um, uh, uh, and also the work of this journalist, Hubert of Chernin, uh, who discovered that uh, not only did Kurt Waldheim have um, a dubious past, but a, a lot of the paintings in Austrian museums had gotten there uh, through a dark and murky uh, path uh, after being stolen by Nazis. So all of this uh, caused uh, pressure for the Austrians who passed a 1998 art uh, restitution law that said that any art in state museums that was found to violate um, uh, the the, uh, art restitution requirements for theft uh, should be returned to its owner. Now, one of the um, one of the stipulations in this law was any paintings that had been pressured from families after the war through these famous quid pro quos, where they gave them some of the property in exchange for art, that was now illegal in hindsight. So this was the uh, this was the time when Maria started to look into perhaps seeking the family's art. Now, she shared the rights to the property under Ferdinand's will with Louise and Robert. Uh, there, Maria felt very differently than them. They moved to Canada, uh, got on with their lives. The uh, Canadian family was extremely wealthy. They rebuilt uh, uh, their family in Canada, but Maria was still very angry. Um, she, they had kind of resigned themselves and put a lot of this in their past. Maria just really still felt the pain of this injustice at that time, and so she was much more motivated to go after the art uh, than they were. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then attorney Randall Schoenberg in Los Angeles enters the picture grandson of the famous composer, uh, also an Austrian-Jewish refugee, Arnold Schoenberg. Uh, Randall Schoenberg becomes her counsel and spearheads the fight for her. How does he become involved? Well, you know, he had actually grown up with Maria. Maria Holtman was the best friend of his grandmother, 
So uh, as Marie always used to say, oh, Randy, I know you can do it in diapers. (laughs) (laughs) One day, uh, Maria had read about this this art restitution law when it was passed in 1998. So she called up his office and uh, she was looking for Schoenberg's mother. Because she wanted to talk it over with her, and uh-huh. and Schoenberg said, "Well, you know, my mom is in Vienna right now. Um, I'll give her a message." And Maria said, "Yeah, well, I've been reading about this law," and and she listened. And you know, they say that the Viennese and people in Europe see the Holocaust more in shades of gray, and Americans see it in more black and white shades. I think that that's probably has. Some truth, particularly in Vienna, where they people really do talk about it in shades of gray. But Schoenberg was uh, a grandson of a refugee. He had was very zealous about wanting to correct what he considered a historic wrong. Um, at the time, uh, this kind of case really didn't, as I say, have much hope of ever winning. But I think that he. Uh, was very attracted to the challenge. He had gotten involved in some of the um, reparations negotiations with the Austrian government that had taken place with the, at the time of the Claims Resolution Tribunal. Uh, these were some belated efforts to give Jewish survivors some benefits that they should have gotten after the war. So, you know, he sort of felt this sense of mission. Um, I, at this point, it would be hard to say that it would have been because of profit because, uh, you know, I once I actually called up, this was in uh, the early, in 2003 or so, I called up legal experts and asked them uh, what chances they thought he had of winning this case because he kept persevering. And most of them said things to me like, well, he's really swimming upstream and no one thought he would win. Even when he did win, even the Los Angeles Times uh, was blindsided by that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I'm not surprised. In my previous life as an attorney, I was involved with Holocaust asset recovery. And it was, uh, number one, it was amazing 50 years after that um, this effort was going forward. And it was so meaningful to the survivors. Um, and since we were talking about hard assets... You know, this was a matter that uh, seemed to make so much sense, right? We're not talking about reparations. This is hard assets um, with uh, provable provenance. Um, so it's quite a miracle. His family hanging on walls like stolen property. Right. And for me, there was another issue also. Uh, for me, this was not just a restitution of art or property. This is a restitution of history. One of the reasons the world really knew very little about Gustav Klimt and the people who were his friends and supporters was because their art had been stolen and it was hanging on museum walls. For the Austrians to detail all of these people would have been tantamount to admitting to theft. There was a lot of material that I found in the course of this book that had never seen the light of day. These were memoirs of growing up with Klimt by a young woman he painted who probably had an affair with her Jewish mother. There were letters, all kinds of things that had been sitting gathering dust in drawers and uh, locked up because this aspect 
was something that Austria really avoided. Mm -hmm. So for me, this wasn't just a restitution of art, it was a restitution of history. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can tell our listeners how the restitution succeeded. This was a matter uh, of not only legal rights, but also politics and public opinion. How, How did it happen? Well, you know, it, it's like uh, Stuart Eisenstadt, the famous uh, Holocaust justice attorney, said uh, a lot of restitutions don't just take place in the court of law, they take place in the court of public opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, even granted that all the legal bases are there, that it, it that legally the, the, the burden is to return property, people don't always want to do this. Now, one of the things that Schoenberg did uh, through this case, which really shine a light on this, not just on his case, but on others. He used the media. He set up a website. He really uh, uh, gave attention to this. He used the press. He was very, very good at this. But one thing that uh, helped him quite a bit that I think kind of turned the die was that he went to the Supreme Court and he won. And I think the Austrians looked at that. Uh, he didn't win on the grounds of the case. He won on jurisdiction, on the right to hear the case in the United States. The Supreme Court said this case had that right. Mm-hmm. That was very unusual because these are events that were taking place somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So the jurisdiction was in question. And I think uh, the, the Austrians just felt really back in a the corner. They could fight uh, for years and appeal. But at this point... They uh, were getting really a lot of international pressure and uh, negative publicity. Mm -hmm. So the Austrians offered to allow a distinguished panel of Austrian jurors, uh, very respected attorneys in Austria, to look at this. And the head of the panel was German. He had moved to Austria in his 20s and become a citizen through marriage and uh, was ultimately given citizenship through uh, the fact that he was such a distinguished legal scholar. He had written many of Austria's books on uh, property law, and no one really knew that much about him, um, but he was the head of this panel, and uh, he lived very privately. He didn't give interviews, but... Um, the panel concluded that, in a very detailed opinion that is available on the Internet in English, they went through the uh, 1998 Art Restitution Law and decided that this case fit um, the grounds for restitution that they had violated uh, their, the, and stolen the art. So, one of the things that the Austrian authorities concluded uh, when this judgment came out was the fact that there was a German head of this panel uh, really affected the decision because uh, Germans grew, grew up being taught about collective guilt, mm-hmm. and Austrians only believed in personal guilt. Mm-hmm. But so that happened, and Austria really had no choice. Their own legal scholars had had uh, said recommended that the paintings be returned, and this was a huge. Uh, Case for the rest of Europe, a big collection that uh, that Holland had of um, Jacques Houtsteker was was uh, returned right afterwards, 
And I think that other European governments at that time looked at this and thought, oh, my God, we could, we could either um, stall for years and years uh, and be dragged through the slime in the mud and eventually return paintings, or we could just return these paintings now. Mm-hmm. And so some of these other collections uh, were returned at this time. Mm-hmm. So it had far-reaching repercussions in, in addition to the extraordinary recovery of the Klimt portrait. Other art was recovered as well. Yes, it did at the time, that, you know, the sensational case. I mean, since then, restitution has had its fits and starts, and, and there are still a lot of obstacles. And you still get the sense, uh, as Maria Altman always used to say, they're waiting for me to die. You still get the sense that people are stalling because mm-hmm. they know that these these uh, kind of iconic people like Maria Altman, who lived through the Holocaust, who have all this moral gravitas, aren't going to be around forever. And a lot of them are already gone. And when they go, they take away uh, a lot of the compulsion to return some of these paintings. The younger heirs just aren't as interested. Um, they don't share the same motivation uh, of someone like Maria. And I think, you know, probably some people are waiting for these cases to go away. But at this time, a lot of art was returned. Mm-hmm. And there was a much greater awareness and consciousness. Mm-hmm. And to the point where it, in Austria, uh, a dozen Kunst paintings have been returned since this case began. These are very important paintings. I think the, uh, the one that sold for the least sold for $40 million dollars. These were landscapes, portraits, all kinds of paintings, a dozen masterpieces that were all stolen during the war uh, since this case began, and I think as a result of this case. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Let me ask you, uh, looking back at what we've discussed, you suggest in the book that there's a moral lesson in this story of a painting. Um, You want to say in a few words what that moral story is? Or do you want to leave it to us to figure it out? Well, you know, uh, a society and a culture um, really has to think long and hard when they when they um, try to defend themselves with terms like patrimony or cultural property. Uh, one of the things I wanted readers to uh, to try to think about at the end is what makes something cultural property? What makes something patrimony? Did they honor uh, the the milieu that produced this painting? Did they honor this group of people? How did they treat them? Uh, what is what exactly is this painting a symbol of? Uh, is it a symbol of uh, the triumph of of Jewish assimilation in turn of the century Vienna, which is was is always cast as the stage of Jewish assimilation, or was it a, a, a story of its tragic failure? Uh, I think a society can only keep secrets and uh, tell itself and others lies for so long. I think uh, eventually um, a society has to come to some authentic understanding of itself. And I think that with the restitution of these paintings, Austria learned something uh, that was very important. They learned about their own history. 
many things in their history that people didn't know. I would argue that that was a, a, a great gift uh, in spite of the loss of these paintings. Well, with that framework, uh, let me recommend to our listeners again that you read or listen to The Lady in Gold, The Extraordinary Tale of Gustav Klimt's Masterpiece, Portrait of Adele Bloch-Bauer, by our author, whom we've had the pleasure of hearing today, Anne-Marie O'Connor. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie O'Connor. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, Please read the book and return for our next interview with an author in New Books in Jewish Studies. 